Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I can adapt if absolutely necessary, if, if it becomes evident that I need to. But I think we are actually going to cover verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians 2 in the morning service. I'm titling this, this sermon from death in sins to life in Christ. This is one of those precious texts of Scripture which, um, as much as any Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, this is a high point of Scripture. And I approach it knowing that I could do it great injustice (laughs) because I'm just me. But we will do our best this morning. To come to the Bible, or to sermons from the Bible, and expect it to be mostly about yourself, your thoughts and deeds, your hopes and dreams, your self-esteem and self-help, that's foolish and ungodly. The Bible is first about the God who made you and to whom you must answer. And then, yes, God's glory displayed in the scriptures certainly has ramifications. It has necessary implications for every area of your life. But the Bible draws the attention first to God, not you. However, while our text today does give all the glory to God, it does so in a way that is all about you. You notice I don't have separate application points at the end. I'm trying to do it throughout the sermon today because it's all about you from beginning to end. No one else. You. If you are a human soul here today, the first three verses of the sermon text are all about you. You and your natural state. The condition in which you were born into this world. So whether you are a mom or a dad, man or a woman, a boy or a girl here, it's about you. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the remaining seven verses are also directly about you. In the context of this letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul has been flying very high. He's just soared into the high heavenlies as he describes the power at work within Christian believers, God's power at work within them. That power is God's own almighty power, not a second-class power or lower-grade power, but it's God's own power which raised Jesus Christ from the dead and exalted him to heaven and enthroned him at God's right hand, far above every other dominion in heaven and on earth. Not only did this power of God make Christ head over all, but it gave him that universal dominion for the sake of his church, his body. We who by faith are one with Jesus Christ, we have everything in him. We lack no power, no provision. That's what Paul's just said and shown us. Because our Lord is not just our Lord, he is Lord of all. But that turns 
Paul's attention directly to those who are now one with Christ. What has God's power done not only for his risen son, but what has it done in the individual lives of those who believe in his son? So Paul turns to us as his audience with the words, and you, and you. You want the unvarnished truth about yourself? Here it is. Let's read it. Verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. big idea of the text. We in Christ have been raised with him from death to glory by God's sheer grace. Notice Paul is directly addressing those who are in Christ who have believed in him. He has already said in chapter 1 that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his, of his grace. And he said that in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of the inheritance until the possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So he's speaking to those who heard the word of truth, the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, and what he came to do to save sinners. And they believed it. But how did that happen? What made the difference from those around them who did not believe the message? But they believed. And now they are in Christ. In, in union with him by faith. This passage tells us. We in Christ have been raised with him from death to glory by God's sheer grace. No works, nothing of ours, God's sheer grace. Number one, verses one through three, and this will take a while to hammer in. Verses one through three, it first talks about everyone, not just those now in Christ, everyone, all mankind. Number one, in their inherited nature, all of mankind are dead, 
driven and doomed. This is one of those places where usually it's good to smile as you're speaking from the pulpit to people, smile a little bit, but I don't know how I can smile much at this point. This is deadly serious. In their inherited nature, all of mankind are dead, driven, and doomed. First of all, including us in all mankind, we were dead in devoted rebellion. We were dead in devoted rebellion. Verses 1 through beginning of verse 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Some of you, if you have an older version, the King James probably, it says, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. That was just the translators, the old translators trying to smooth out the English. Actually, Paul waits for his main verb that God made us alive. He waits for that all the way until, uh, I believe it's verse 5. But there's this tension. Paul doesn't even get to his main point yet, but he, he just builds the black picture for us first. You, having been dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, what's a trespass or a transgression? Well, the, the, the specific nuance and point of that word is that it's a violation of a sanctioned statute or law. We've talked about this before. God drew a line. And we said, I will cross that line. I will violate that because I want to. That's transgressions or trespasses. No trespassing? (laughs) Don't cross the line. Don't go there. I'm going to go there. We were dead in trespasses, the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And of course, sin has that idea of rebellion, violation of God's law. Um, Also, the idea of missing the mark, falling short of the perfection which we um, we ought to meet by God's standard. But as we'll see a little later on, it's simply disobedience to God. It says you once walked in these trespasses and sins. It's not that you kept having hiccups in your life where you you accidentally or briefly uh, slipped up again. You were walking in this. This was your lifestyle. Walking um, was common figure of speech in Jewish circles and in the Old Testament for how you conduct your everyday life. It's your habits, your your lifestyle, all of that. God wanted his people Israel to walk according to his statutes and not according to the way they they did in Canaan, not according to the customs of the peoples around them. But everyone, naturally, Jew and Gentile, walk, live, habitually act in trespasses and sins. It's not the exception to the rule for us, the way we're born. It's the rule. It's who we are. 
And not only were we dead in devoted rebellion, we were driven by the world, the devil, and the flesh. End of verse 2 into beginning of verse 3. Following, or literally just according to, but it's the idea of we were, we were under the, the forceful direction and control of some things. Following the course of this world, or the age of this world, as we'll talk about. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, among those sons of disobedience, as, as one of them, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires or the will of the body and the mind. We were driven by the world, the devil, and the flesh. The course of this world, again, literally, it's combining two words. This age and this world. It's the age of this world. Paul already mentioned the idea of there being a present age and then the age to come, back in chapter 1, verse 21. But often the New Testament talks about the present age as evil. Why? Well, it's the time in which Satan and sin are still at work. They still hold sway among the general population. (laughs) They are not consigned to their judgment yet. And Satan exercises... um, an iron grip on those outside of Christ. Galatians 1, therefore, says that Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And the world, in this negative sense, it shows up here and elsewhere, the world describes the nations in their spiritual darkness and their hostility toward the true God. Sort of that Old Testament idea of the nations without God, but includes everyone outside of Christ. The world is in spiritual darkness, and so it's hostile toward the true God. Clinton Arnold says, The age of this world is the unhealthy and ungodly social, cultural, economic, and political environment in which we live. It represents organized evil in the form of peer pressure, Ideologies, lofty systems of thought, systems and structures that provide us with a script for living life totally apart from God and his purposes. False religion is part of this evil world system. Peer pressure from your friends to live ungodly, part of this evil world system. The idea that we have to keep up with the neighbor next door in the things of this world, part of the evil world system. The desires of the flesh, which we'll talk about. The desires of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, we heard about from Brother John, part of this evil world system. The way people in this age think they can ignore God and live life their own way and encourage each other in that. Solidarity. S.M. Boss says, in our passage, the age of this world clearly has a negative reference. As it is not only a time reference, but it refers to the fallen world system. As such, it is dominated by fleshly lusts, according to verse 3. And it's a system to which Christians must not be conformed, Romans 12, 2. 
There Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, literally to this age. <laughs> the rulers of this age are doomed to pass away, 1 Corinthians 2, 6-8. through 8, Along with the God of this age, who has blinded the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Unbelievers are sons of this age, Luke 16, 8. Who, who are accordingly called here sons of disobedience, verse 2. The objects of God's wrath. I'll just pause and ask the question, do you feel at home in this ungodly world? Is this what you're most comfortable with? Do you strive to be acknowledged and honored by this present world? Do you want worldly respectability? Whether it's in the academy or in a friend group or at work or with family, whatever it is. If so, if you feel at home here and you want to get your significance from the here and now, that's not a good sign. All people naturally are dead, driven, and doomed. We're saying they're being driven by the world, the devil, and the flesh. The world came first here, but then it tells us that the world is not just haphazardly, randomly acting this way. There is a malevolent spiritual force, not an almighty spirit, but a very powerful spirit with many spiritual allies. The Bible calls him that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan. Here he's called the prince or the ruler of the power of the air. The archon, the prince, the ruler. Same word Jesus used to call Satan throughout the Gospel of John, the ruler of this world. Or he's called the ruler of the demons in the Gospels as well. Same word for ruler. So here it's the idea of being the ruler of the demons because he's the ruler of the power of the air, of the unseen world would be the idea. That This word for a prince or ruler also is the same word used of the unseen forces behind Christ's crucifixion. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 and through 8. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, there it is, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. When Jesus was arrested to eventually be crucified, but arrested by his own people, he said, acknowledging what was happening, Luke twenty two fifty three. this is your hour and the power, the authority, the exousia of darkness. And that word also shows up in our text here in Ephesians. He's the prince of the exousia, of the, of the power, the authority of the air. This is the the idea of authority or jurisdiction, not just brute force, but it's a realm, it's a domain. It exercises authority over its subjects. Why Paul says in Colossians 1, similarly, verse 13, God has delivered us from the domain, same word, from the domain or power of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now again, the prince of the power of the air, 
the air was a very normal way in that day for both Jews and Gentiles to speak of the demonic realm, the spiritual realm. It's a fitting way of talking about it too because spirits are invisible, like air. In fact, the word for spirit in Greek can also be used for the wind. So the idea is there are vast spiritual forces at work to keep humanity on this track. Now, humanity is by nature this way, as we'll see, but to egg us on and to further inspire us to shake our fists at God. Because Satan and his angels and all the evil spirit realm, they are aligned against God and they have no hope. They have no redemption. So they take us with them. It calls this one, elsewhere called Satan or the devil, it calls him the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, There's this Hebrew way of talking. If someone is a son of something, it means they're characterized by that. um, If I'm the son of Keith Habegger, it means, for better or for worse, I'm I'm a lot like him. (laughs) I, I get a lot from him. If you're the son of something, you're like that thing. So sons of disobedience just means they are thoroughly disobedient. And the contrast here, as Harry Eppertrude says, is between the work of the Spirit of God and that of the devil. Both are personal, he says. The seriousness of what sin does to man is emphasized by the use of the same word for the personal activity of the devil as for the personal saving action of God. Where it says he's now at work. That's language that was recently used in Ephesians for how God is at work in us. But the devil is the spirit at work in those who disobey. He energizes their evil. So we don't need to ask the question, by the way. It's kind of pointless to ask the question, do sinners sin just because of who they are or because the devil gets them to do it? Both. They're responsible and he's responsible. Both. They're all in it together. 1 John 5, 18-19 says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, does not live that lifestyle, that is, but he who was born of God, you could look at that as Jesus, the only begotten of God, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and, by contrast, that is, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's how our ESV translates that. Lies in the evil one. Totally under the the spell, you could say, of the devil. Satan has seduced our race to be a disobedient race. No one here can honestly say they have always been obedient, can they? We're born wanting to disobey. But disobedience, rebellion toward God and the authorities he's put in place, it's not cute. Parents, it's not cute. And 
It's not an acceptable form of self-expression. It's cosmic treason in imitation of the devil. And it degrades the image of God in us. He made us, he made men upright, as Solomon said, but we've sought out many devices. Disobedience makes common cause with the demonic realm. As Samuel said to disobedient King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, he wanted to say he'd done this great religious stuff, but he hadn't actually obeyed what God had said. Samuel said, As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. Intercourse with the demonic realm. Rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption, or stubbornness, is as iniquity and idolatry. Paul goes on in our text, in Ephesians 2, saying, we all once lived this way. He's not just talking about the Ephesians in a peculiar plight they were in. Everyone was like this. Paul was like this. We all once lived in the passions, the, the lusts of our flesh, the strong, the strong urges and desires, cravings of our flesh, carrying out the desires or the will of the body and the mind. So every part of our being, we've talked about the world, we've talked about the devil, we're driven by both of those, we're also driven by just us, our flesh, our natural state outside of Christ. And it's a strong force. Every part of our being, he listed it here, the passions of our flesh, every part of our being, emotion, desire, will, body, mind, every aspect was enlisted for selfish disobedience. That's the doctrine of total depravity. Some have gone farther in their corruption than others, but we all are basically the same in this. In some, the cancer is perhaps more obviously advanced. And yet, if we look closely, the cancer has spread to every part of us, for each of us. We came out from the womb, body and soul, will, emotion, desire, everything is corrupt. It's not what it ought to be. It's radically evil. What is the flesh? We've been referring to it, but as our nature we're born with, but the flesh is an inner propensity and inclination to do evil, as Clinton Arnold says. It's our creatureliness infected by the implications of the fall of Adam, meaning since our father Adam fell, now this is how we're born. That, that propels us to act in ways contrary to what God would have us do. It represents a bent toward ourselves and away from God. As Paul Gardner says, those who follow Satan find that their whole life is preoccupied with self-gratification. Not only in what they do, but also in the way they think. You see, God doesn't just have a problem with your actions. If you're without Christ. He has a problem with the very way you think. The way you process everything. The way everything is about you. You say, I'm not a selfish person like that. Yes, you are. 
We all were. We have ways of making it look better and of doing relatively unselfish things, but still, in the end, it's all about us. See, those who follow Satan think they're merely pleasing themselves. They, they murder and lie, either figuratively or literally, to get what they want. But the devil is the murderer-in-chief, the murderer from the beginning, and he's the father of lies. I mentioned our thoughts. This word for the mind is used in the Greek Old Testament in Genesis 8.21, where the Lord says, the intention, that's the word in, in the Greek translation, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. But again, there's going to be the objection. Well, how can you say things this way? I know there's evil in the world, but there's also goodness and truth and beauty in people. We're not devils, at least not most of us. Maybe Hitler, maybe Pol Pot, maybe some people like that. My neighbor is a kind, giving person. People don't have to be Christians to act unselfishly. I know people have done stuff for me, and they're not Christians. How can we say this? Are we just being hateful like the world says we're being? Why do you say we are all devoted to selfish rebellion? Driven by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Obviously, much can be said about this. Basically, the whole Bible is about this. About how we need to change our thinking here. First of all, because God our Maker tells us we have radically fallen. We don't know what righteousness is, really. God, our Maker, tells us we've radically fallen from His perfect holiness for which He made us. Our own relative standards of good, which we measure against each other. Well, that guy's pretty bad, but I'm better. That, that, that's our relative standard of what we call good. That's blown away by God's holy purity. That's one reason we have to speak like this, because we have to speak in light of the God who is the truth, not our own personal truth that we want to see according to our own standards. But second... Yes, we see plenty of evidence that God made man in his image and likeness. We see the, the twisted remains of that. So there is good stuff in the world. We also see that even the best of natural human goodness, though, is rotten at its core. Things can look really good on the outside. As Jesus told the most respected religious leaders of his time, on the outside, you're beautiful like whitewashed tombs, but in the inside, you're full of dead men's bones and all corruption. We all break the first and greatest commandment. In fact, I often remember a time when someone at a previous job, when I was quite a bit younger, someone knew I was a Christian and apparently it was eating at them. They just came right up to me at work and minding my own business and they start, they, they express their objection to my beliefs that people are really that bad. 
And I said, you know what the first and greatest command is? What God told us it is? No. <laughs> Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. None of us have done that. Not even close. It's not like we got so close and then we messed up one day. <laughs> we never do that like we ought. That's the standard. And we all break the second commandment flowing from the first, the command to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. Once we've broken those two, how dare we protest that we're a good moral person? How dare we protest that we aren't an addict or a criminal or a murderer or a sexual deviant? We have the same evil within us. We just have different preferences in how to express it. We love our own pitiful selves far more than we love others, let alone God. And furthermore, the deeds that the passions of the flesh produce, those deeds for which God's wrath comes on mankind, those things include many things that we think are normal. Galatians 5.16 tells Christians... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Same wording translated here, the passions of the flesh. Then down in verse 19 of that text, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Oh yeah, that's bad. Well, do we really think it's that bad? How normal is it for people to live with each other outside of marriage? And we just don't think anything of it anymore. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. That takes it further, doesn't it? Anything sensual or impure. Idolatry, oh yeah, falling down before false gods, obviously. Sorcery, yep. Enmity. Just being hostile towards others. Strife, jealousy. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So yeah, letting her not exercising self-control. You know, there's a lot in this list that people would often defend. I have a right to be this way. We call it good. God doesn't call it good. Now, end of verse 3. We said we were, we were dead, we were driven, and we were doomed. We were doomed under God's wrath. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. By nature means we were born that way. Same sort of wording used to talk about someone where someone physically came from and their family. By nature, we're born that way. It was our inherited nature as members of Adam's race. Only in the incarnation of Jesus Christ was someone conceived without a depraved nature that produces sin and calls for damnation. So, if, you, if, if something which God condemns feels natural to you, that doesn't make it any less evil. And that's not a reason to rationalize that maybe God doesn't really condemn this. 
We are evil by nature. Now, Paul Gardner rightly says here about God's wrath. He says, God's wrath or anger with sinners is not in any sense the type of anger that we might have that is so often arbitrary and, of course, quite sinful. We are often, quote, blinded by anger. We cannot see what is true and what is untrue. We become irrational. Our anger is often self-centered. God's wrath is altogether different. The word describes his judicial righteousness that expresses his full opposition to those who sin and to their way of life. As the judge of all and as one who is perfectly righteous and holy and sees things as they really are, God's justice demands his judgment of condemnation on those who sin. God didn't just get irrationally mad with us. He sees us for who we really are according to the terms of his created world. And we deserve fury. Not a temper tantrum. Righteous fury. That's God's wrath. Like the rest of mankind. Paul says this was him before he came to Christ. The credentialed Pharisee of the Pharisees, the son of Abraham, the son of the kingdom, as they, he would have seen himself, he wouldn't have thought he was, as a pious Jew, as a great keeper of the law of Moses, he wouldn't have thought of himself as a son of destruction or a son of Gehenna, as Jesus called the Pharisees. He thought that by birth, Basically, he was a child of God, John 8. Not like those filthy Gentiles. But now Paul gets it. As S.M. Boss says, now Paul rightly understands that nature does not convey right standing before God. But instead, the whole world, both Jew and Gentile, stands condemned before God apart from Christ. And therefore, we all, both Jew and Greek, were by nature children of God's wrath. No, you were not born a Christian. And neither were you born or baptized into God's covenant of grace as an infant. A person is either in Adam or in Christ, not both at the same time. There is no sense in which you have any claim on God's favor by nature. And it's not believers and their children who are in Christ, but only believers. And we can't even presume, as some do, that the children of believers are themselves believers until they prove otherwise. That's foolish. If the Jewish teachers of Jesus' day, the physical descendants of Abraham, could be circumcised and yet be the children of the devil... What makes you think that your family or your religious ceremonies give you God's favor? I'm not being mean. I'm telling you, you're going to die if you hold on to that. Because I love you. No, sinner, you are under the wrath of God. 
if you look to what nature can bestow on you or your parents or your upbringing or your church credentials, you are doomed. John 1, 10 through 13, reading from the NASB, Jesus, the word of God, he was in the world and the world came into being through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not accept him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, it's through faith as we'll see, who were born, who became this, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. By nature we are children of wrath, as everyone else is. No exceptions. This finally brings us to the second point of the text, verses 4 through 7. Here God breaks in. In his rich mercy, God loved and saved us by his grace alone in Christ alone. That's a mouthful. In his rich mercy, in spite of who we were, God loved and saved us by his grace alone in Christ alone. We who are in Christ Verses 4 through 5, the beginning of verse 5. First of all, God's mercy and love took almighty action when we were, when we were still dead. Paul takes the trouble to say, and we were still dead when this happened. <laughs> His mercy and love took almighty action when we were still dead. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Paul uses two words for love back to back to give you the point. He loved us so much. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he did what we're about to talk about. God's rich mercy. The Greek term for mercy often translated the Old Testament Hebrew word for God's covenant love and faithfulness. And then there's also the aspect of mercy as sheer pity on those who are in a pitiful state. One example where this word actually shows up three times in the Greek Old Testament. So I'll read from an English translation of, of the Septuagint, that Greek translation, where the Lord passes before Moses and shows him part of his glory. Exodus 34, 5 through 7. Actually, starting in verse 6. And the Lord passed by right before him and he called out, The Lord God, compassionate and merciful, <clears throat> long-suffering and full of mercy and trustworthy, and maintaining righteousness and mercy to thousands, forgiving iniquity and injustices and sin. This is God's glory. That he is not only just, he is rich in mercy. Great in love. Our sin is no match for his love. This great love is, as one hymn says, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. In fact, I'd say it's it was love to the unlovely and unlovable. And what an encouragement this is, that God's mercy is rich and his love is much. If you know that you're stuck in your sins under the power of the world and the devil and there's nothing you can do about it. I can't change who I am. No, you can't. 
But God is rich in mercy. His love is great. And that changes everything. Now notice, he's about to say God made us alive because of this. We did not cooperate with a merciful and loving God to obtain spiritual life. You were not the dying man who accepts medicine. Not not the picture Paul's painting here. He's making it so stark to understand you had nothing to do with it at that stage, in that way. You were not the dying man who accepts medicine. We were already dead and still dead, and then God made us alive. Why did we believe on Jesus Christ? Because God had made us alive. He did not first ask our permission. No, he breathed his Holy Spirit into us, imparting his own life to us. He called us out of our spiritual graves. We were dead, decomposing, rotting spiritually. But death and decay were no match for the mercy and love of God Almighty. John 5, Jesus says that he, as the Son of God, has life in himself as the Father has life in himself. And he says... In John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Next verse. Explaining how people pass from death to life and have faith. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. You were Lazarus in the tomb, and God the Father, to Christ the Son, said, Lazarus, come forth! And you came out of your tomb. You passed from death to life. Now next here, as we look at the end of verse 5 and verse 6, we see that God's grace saved us by resurrecting us and enthroning us with Christ. Because God had rich mercy and great love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, end of verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ. And the verbs here he uses are like, um, he co-made us alive with Christ. He co-raised us with Christ. He co-seated us with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. It's as if we ascended to heaven and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus at God's right hand. By grace you have been saved. God's grace saves us from the domain of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But it does that by making us right with God himself. So... What does it mean? It saves us? Yes, it saves us from that which drove us before, including Satan himself and the world and our own flesh. But it saves us primarily from God's own wrath, the just penalty for our sins. That's how Paul talks about salvation throughout his writings. It's being saved from the wrath of God. 
And this deliverance, the salvation, is by grace. Grace is God's favor to those who deserve wrath. It's not by our achievements or merits. We were dead. We were driven. We were doomed. God made us alive. He raised us to heaven. He enthroned us with his own son. One day we will physically, in person, experience what that means. But we already have it in a spiritual sense. He took the evil, not, now not mindless zombies as we think of them in popular literature <laughs> and film. Not that I'm into zombie movies. We weren't mindless zombies but we were the evil, the actively, intentionally evil, walking dead. He took those people and instantly made them new creations, exalted to heaven. He could have done nothing greater for us. And all of this is expressing the inexpressible reality of union with our Savior. Because... Paul is saying what he's saying now because of what he said in chapter 1 about what God did for Christ. Ephesians 1.19 And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul Gardner again, being in Christ, sums up all that Christians have and are as co-heirs with Christ. Romans 8, 17, as his people. These together with words help us to see that our inheritance in Christ is is so deep and wonderful, we can summarize it like this. What is true of our King Jesus is true of us. They point to the fact that Christ is truly our representative King. He brings us before God. He is alive. He has been raised. Therefore, his people are alive and have been raised together with him. He is seated in the heavenly realms. Therefore, we are seated together with him. Or as Paul puts it in Colossians 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's a little more I could say here, but I'm going to... Try to move ahead quickly. Verse 7. God's kindness eternally targets us as the display of his boundless grace. What's the future now? What's the end game? We have a target on us as God's people. As I've said before, that God may empty the quiver of his kindness upon us but that will take all eternity God's kindness eternally targets us as the display of his boundless grace 
Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Remember the big idea. We in Christ have been raised with him from death to glory by God's sheer grace. Now I hasten to add the third and last point. In this glorious salvation, God alone gets the credit. These are probably the most familiar verses for most of you from this text, right? Verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2. But listen to them again. In this glorious salvation, God alone gets the credit. Actually, we're we're going verses 8 through 10, not just through verse 9. Beginning of verse 8 tells us that God saved us on the basis of grace alone, through the channel of faith alone. He didn't save us because our faith was so good. But he saved us using the instrument of faith to throw us on Christ. And it's because he was gracious. And that's, that's the only reason. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is the same Greek word for belief or trust. It's all the same thing. So what about you? Have you so believed the gospel message about Jesus Christ? Children, have you believed what the Bible says about Jesus and what he did for sinners? Do you believe it in a way that makes you trust Jesus and entrust your soul to him? If not, you have not been saved from the realm of darkness or the wrath of God. It doesn't matter if you have some fond, nice thoughts about Jesus if you don't entrust yourself to him by faith. But if you have done that, if you have in faith run to Jesus, you have been saved. By God's amazing grace. You don't need to doubt. You have been saved if you if you have faith in Christ. That's it. You say, but there's we won't go into this much. There's there's fake faith that looks good, yeah. But all I'm saying is if you if it's real, <laughs> if you really do trust Jesus. You will entrust your soul to him. And you are saved. If that's true of you. It's that simple. And this entire package now of salvation is God's gift, not our achievement. So let me say really quick, some good folks like us, I think I've done this before, um, having good theology, they want to say what Paul is saying here is, Specifically about the faith. And this faith is not your own doing. But in the Greek grammar, that's not possible. What Paul is doing is he's saying this whole package is not your own doing. So that includes the faith that's not your doing. But it's the whole thing that's not your doing. That's his point. The grace, that's not from you. The faith, that's not your doing either. It's God's gift. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
if none of the package is our achievement, by the way, not even faith is our achievement. It's part of what God grants us, his gift to us, like Philippians 1.29 talks about how God granted to us for the sake of Christ to believe in him. And if even faith is God's creation within us, if it's just the evidence that God has breathed life into us, then we can't be proud of our faith. And we also shouldn't be worried whether our faith was of a good enough quality to justify us before God. Do you know how many people struggle with just severe introspection examining, so was my faith good enough for God? That's not the point. The point is who your faith connects you to, Jesus Christ. As long as our faith is truly trust in Jesus Christ, it's good enough. It just throws us on our Savior. God doesn't declare us righteous because our faith measures up. He declares us righteous because Jesus Christ, the one on whom we rest all our trust, measures up. That's it. Again, so that no one may boast. It's not a result of works, in case you missed that, Paul says, so that no one may boast. The idea of boasting here is the idea that people may come before God in his presence and say, okay, God, I have this to offer you. I have this to bargain with before you. I have this credit with you because of what I did or who I am. We have none of that. All the glory goes to God, not an ounce to us. In verse 10, we are God's new creation. Devoted to foreordained good works. That's a mouthful too. We are God's new creation devoted to foreordained good works. We are his workmanship. And just very quickly, that word for workmanship, you could also translate it as another word for creation. It's used that way in various places. But it also has that idea of fine craftsmanship, masterpiece. (laughs) God created us as his his special creation in Christ Jesus now. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. That idea of foreordaining even our what we would accomplish by faith in this life, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, this being brought from death to life, it's spoken of in various radical ways. Here it's spoken of now as a new creation. Elsewhere it's spoken of as the new birth, being born again. It's all God's doing. And it's just as supernatural and wonderful as when God created the heavens and the earth. We weren't there to contribute anything when God created the world. And neither do we contribute anything when God created us new in Christ Jesus. That's the point. Now, listen to this. I think this is very helpful from Clinton Arnold again. As he thinks about the people to whom Paul was writing. He says, this purpose of God's redemption and empowerment of believers. He created us for good works stands in strong contrast to many of the religions of Paul's day, especially as represented in the common folk belief. 
the orientation of many of the adherents tended to look more self-serving. That is, through approaching the deity with such goals as... Okay, so why were people serving their false gods? Well, they were thinking, how can I benefit from this god? Or how can I get this god to make my cattle fertile or my crops productive? Or what can I do to keep the god from striking me with some punishment? He says the orientation of the gospel is different because it is not predicated on a you do this for me and I will do this for you foundation. It is based on a self-sacrificial gift of God. Now he expects his people to give and love and do good deeds while expecting nothing in return. So listen, this is my last thing I have to say, basically. Christians, people who are dead in sins try to do good works to impress God and impress their fellow man, or maybe to selfishly get something from God, or at least to keep them off their backs. They want to quiet their conscience, maybe impress the righteous judge of heaven, thinking God's going to grade on a curve, because I'm better than the next guy. Maybe they are trying to make up for the fact that deep down they actually resent God. But that's not what we Christians do. We are enabled to do truly good works, and we do them because it's our nature now. Yeah, we have remaining sin that keeps us from doing all the good we want to do. And yet, we really have a new nature made in the image of our God and Savior. We do good works because God has forgiven us. He's declared us righteous. Now he's filling us with his goodness. We can't help it, in a sense. Yeah, we need to work on it, but it's our new nature. We're doing good works because God made us that way to want to do them. Pursue that. Rejoice in that. We in Christ have been raised with him from death to glory by God's sheer grace. Sometimes Charles Wesley's hymn theology was better than his brother's written theology or spoken theology. And so we love this hymn. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine, addressing God, thine eye diffused a quickening, a a resurrecting ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus, and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown to Christ my own. Let's pray. Father, this was a long text, but a glorious text. Help us believe it. Help those who have only experienced the first three verses Oh, make them alive, Father. Bring them to not only admit, but rejoice in the truth that they are sinners, great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior, and they embrace him by faith. Save our children, Lord. Save those here who might be here that that might have us all fooled 
even themselves, but open their eyes if they are not truly yours. And for those of us who are truly yours, I trust the majority. Fill us with joy and peace in believing. Help us not to be proud, self-righteous people, but people who give glory to you as we rejoice to do good works which you've prepared beforehand that we may walk in them. Once we walked according to the course of this world, according to the devil, according to our own flesh, now we walk in good works. Help us for Jesus' sake, Father. May this message from your word not be in vain, but may it accomplish that, the purpose for which you've sent it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.